Hey, good morning, everybody. Great to see you on this rainy Sunday morning. Welcome all of you who are watching with us in person and all of you who are joining us online. Thanks so much for being here. Some of you came in kind of late today. What's up with that? I see everything. I'm not saying I'm uh, omniscient like God or anything like that, but there's very few things about you that I don't know. So just remember that as you go through life every day, okay? If you've got a Bible, I want you to grab it. Let me hear your pages turning to the Gospel of Mark and the 12th chapter. The Gospel of Mark and the 12th chapter. This weekend, we begin a brand new message series called Next Door. And the tagline <clears throat> is the art of neighboring. <clears throat> and what we want to do more than anything else is just focus on what the Bible tells us about the importance of loving our neighbors, what it tells us about that and what that can look like in our lives. Now, before we go into our Mark text today, let's talk about that word neighbor. Next weekend, our passage will be Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, which is that familiar story of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with that story. And uh, there's a lot of great lessons to learn from that story, but one of the lessons we learned that when we talk about our neighbor, when the Bible talks about our neighbors, not necessarily the people who are closest to us in proximity. That story teaches us that our neighbor is pretty much anyone that we meet as we go through the course of life who has a need, and all of us have some kind of a need, and so our neighbor is pretty much anyone we meet. But I don't want to um, think about that to the exclusion of understanding the importance of loving our neighbor's who are literally our neighbors, the people who are right next door to us. Uh, because sometimes in the business of life, that can happen. I've got a drawing pad out here, and I've got a big old marker. I'm not much of an artist, but uh, I'm going to draw a tic-tac-toe board on this. I apologize if you can't see this in every part of the service, but uh, there's nothing I can do about it. So just <laughs> shut up and deal with it. Here we go. <clears throat> now... Everybody's familiar with tic-tac-toe, but this is nothing even closely related to a game of tic-tac-toe. Here's what we're going to do. I want us to just do a little uh, personal test in our own lives about how well we know our neighbors, our literal neighbors, because how well we know them is going to determine a lot about how we love them. I'm going to put an X in the center square, which is going to stand for my house where I live. Sandy and I lived in the same house for a little over 16 years here in Greenwood, and in 2017, we moved to a new house, so we've lived there um, not quite five years. It'll be five years in the fall. Uh, and um, there's been people come and go in our neighborhood since then. But if this square with the X represents my house, then there are eight empty squares around my house. And I'm going to use that to represent the homes around me. Uh, it's a little bit difficult because we live on a cul-de-sac. Do you say cul-de-sac in Indiana or is it a court? What's the right word? Well, I heard both, so nobody knows. Okay, that's great. <clears throat> But I live on a cul-de-sac, all right? So it doesn't line up perfectly square uh, because of that. But let's just think about it for a minute. And I'm gonna, the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to do it like I'm looking at, I'm standing in front of my house, looking at my house. And so these are the houses behind me. I'm going to put a check or a minus next to the people that I know. No clue, no clue, no clue right there for the people that live behind me. And the interesting thing is, is they're really, <clears throat> honestly, not that far behind me because this, Indiana is the first place I've ever lived. I lived the, uh, the rest of my life in Oklahoma and Texas. The only place I've ever lived where people didn't have fences. Now, I don't know what that says about Indiana, whether people are just so friendly or something else. So I, 
but nobody has any fences. But everywhere else I lived, there were privacy fences, but there are no fences at all. So there's nothing that keeps me from really knowing those people because they can be out and about in their yards. Uh, right here on, this one si- on the one side of me, I'm going to put a check because I know those people. You know how I know them? They go to church here. I knew them before I even moved in. I'm not going to tell you their name because I didn't ask them for permission to share their name, and they might not want to, you to know where they live. I don't know. So this is people that I know on the other side. No clue. This house is really close to my house too, but if the man who lives in that house were standing right there on the step, I would not know who he was because they're almost never outside. Okay, and so now there's the houses across the street. Now over here... Right directly across the street is a family that has moved in since I moved into my house. And when they moved in, I went over and introduced myself to the, the woman, the wife, the mom. But since then, no clue. I can't even remember their name. I know it's bad. Over here, over here, who kind of lives. Uh, the next house over is a family that just literally just within the last couple of weeks moved in. I, I met him one day. I was standing at my yard. He was going to get his son off the bus. I think he said his name was Jason. So I'm going to put kind of a half there and kind of half there because I'm not sure if I know him or not. And then over here, I'm going to put a check because I know them because my granddaughter knows their oldest daughter, and that's how I met them, and they've been to church here. So if you look at that, I would have to make a confession, and the confession will be surprising to you. I'm not a very good neighbor. How about you? Maybe some of you weren't able to do that because you live out uh, in, uh, in the country or out in an in, in a area with some land and property, and you're not surrounded by neighbors, and uh, I think, God bless you, you are some really fortunate people. <laughs> I'm not a very good neighbor. And I, I want to follow that by saying, and I'm saying this from the heart, I'm saying with its integrity, I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud of that. And I'm not exactly sure how that happened because that doesn't really fit with my personality or temperament or interest or anything like that. I think that what's happened to, in my life over the course of time, uh, being a pastor now for over 42 years, uh, is that that can be an incredibly draining role. Not a complaint, just a truth. And so at some point in my life, my home, more than anything else, became like a refuge and a safe place for me. And I've always known that I needed that. You know, back years and years and years ago, when everybody started getting answering machines in their homes, I told Sandy, I don't ever want an answering machine in my home because I don't want to walk in the door and the first thing I have to do is return somebody's call. How many of you know what I'm talking about? When I walk in the door, I want to be done I want to be off the clock, so to speak. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. But if I'm going to be really, really honest, I would also tell you that I have recognized about myself as I've gotten older that I've gotten more grouchy. And I've gotten more thin-skinned. And I've gotten to where I'm more easily annoyed and irritated with people than I was when I was younger. And so I'm pretty sure as I stand up here in front of all of you today, that when it comes to loving your neighbor, I am not doing a very good job following the example and the teaching of Jesus.
And so we're going to kick this series off with a really basic message that I'm calling The Art of Neighboring 101. Because we need to start at the very beginning. And the message that I hope you walk away with today is really, really simple and basic. But it's going to take us a little while to get there. We're in Mark chapter 12. And so, if you've got your Bible open there and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. I'm going to read from verse 38, or excuse me, verse 28, all the way down to verse 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor. Everyone say neighbor. Neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that, he had answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then, no one dared ask him any more questions. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and hearing of his word. I know we got some great Bible students in this church, so let's begin with some context this morning. When we get to Mark chapter 12, we find Jesus in the last week of his earthly life, which means he is just days away from the cross. Mark chapter 12 opens with Jesus sharing a parable that is called the parable of the tenants, which is a picture of the coming of Christ and the brutal, ruthless response of the people who were unwilling to receive him. Right after that parable, this is what we read in Mark chapter 12 and verse 12, because the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders knew that Jesus was talking about them in that parable. And so Mark 12, 12 says, Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Because this was a time, even days before Jesus' crucifixion, he was incredibly popular among the people. Remember the story of the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem and the people, the throngs of people who cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But after they went away, they then sent some of their folks, some of their religious leaders back to where Jesus was to begin to ask him questions. And they asked him questions about taxes. They asked him questions about the resurrection. And as they did that, a crowd began to gather. Why wouldn't it? Jesus was popular. Jesus is answering questions. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is debating with the religious leaders. This is something that I want to be a part of. And just so there's no confusion, they weren't asking him questions because they were looking for answers. They were asking him questions because they were showing their stupidity once again in thinking that they could somehow trick him and trap him into saying something against the law that would give them the opportunity to arrest him. But that was never going to happen. Well, eventually, one of the teachers of the law shows up that wasn't sent, wasn't sent there to do this this fake uh, question and answer, Q&A session with Jesus. He came and he was listening to what was happening. He was listening to Jesus' answers, 
And as a result, he spoke up and asked Jesus a legitimate question. You see it again in Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, the reason why he asked that question was because that was something that was actually hotly debated among the religious leaders and the ram and the rabbis in Jesus' day. It wasn't, just, it wasn't just one of those things, oh, I'd like to ask a question. What question could I ask? Oh, yeah, here's a good one. It was something that he asked because it was, it was a burning question. It was on his heart. It was on the hearts of many of the religious leaders. And the reason why was because there was a, a big difference of opinion among them about which of all the commandments were the most important commandments. Now, let me give you a little context for that. And I I could go into greater detail, but I'm going to shrink it down a little bit. There were, determined by the religious leaders, there were 613 separate commandments from God that were found in what we call the Pentateuch. And if you don't know what the word Pentateuch means, that means the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 613 separate commands in the Pentateuch. And what they did, because they were just always trying to make things harder than they needed to be. They were always trying to make the Word of God harder than it needed to be. That's why Jesus talked about uh, coming into a world with the Jewish people where the religious leaders had put this this heavy yoke or this heavy burden on them because of all the laws and all the things they had to remember, all the things they had to do and not do, and on and on and on. It was just a result of of, of their, their trying to make everything harder, which was a part of their effort to try to make themselves look more righteous. So they had these 613 separate commandments. They divided those into two different categories. There were 248 positive commandments and 365 negative commandments. And then they further divided them into two other categories where there were the heavy commandments and the light commandments. The heavy laws and the light laws. The heavy laws were the most binding and the light laws were the least binding. Then, then on top of all that, they spent a lot of time arguing about which of those laws, which of those commandments were the greatest. Some said they were the Sabbath commandments. Some said they were the sacrificial commandments. Others said they were the commandments that carried the greatest punishment for disobedience. And the argument went on and on and on. And so this teacher of the law, not a part of this sideshow orchestrated by religious leaders, said, which is the most important commandment? And Jesus in a very clear and a very matter-of-fact way, gives him the answer. And what's so great about Jesus' answer is it came straight from the Bible. It came straight from the Word of God. It's found right in the Bible. It's not found in man's interpretation. It's not found in someone's opinion. It's not found in conjecture. It comes straight from the Bible. Look back at Mark 12, verse 29. Jesus said, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, everyone look up here and listen. That is, in your Bible and mine, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And here's the deal. These, these religious leaders, these rabbis, they knew the Bible. 
they knew the word of God that they had at that period of time so well that they should have known the answer. The moment someone spoke up and said, which is the most important commandment, someone should have spoke up and said, that's a no-brainer, that's a non-question or a non-starter because the scriptures tell us, literally tell us, which is the most important commandment. But the problem was they wanted to voice their own opinion. They wanted to follow their own thought or their own conjecture with regard to the answer, which is a problem that continues today. I can tell you that there have been so many moments in my life as a pastor over the past 42 years where someone who is a Christian, someone who is a believer, someone who has an understanding of the Bible comes to me and asks me a question that's clearly answered in the Bible, and I tell them what the Bible says, but they don't want to accept it because it's not the answer they want. How is that supposed to work? Sometimes there's the answer we want and there's the answer that is. And we defer to the answer that is by faith. So why didn't they know that? Why didn't they embrace that? This Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 and 5 passage was so well known and loved by the Jewish people. It was so precious to them that they had a name for it. They had a specific name for those verses. They called it the Shema. They call it the Shema because Shema is the Hebrew word for listen or hear. And it was so precious to them that they quoted it twice every single day. Every morning and every evening they quoted the answer to the question every single day. Do you see the tragedy in this? And probably tragedy is the best word to use. They were speaking the words of God with their mouths. They were understanding the words of God with their minds, but they were not applying the words of God to their lives. And listen, don't think for a moment that that's not a problem for all of us still today. It will never, ever be enough to know the truth of God's word in your mind, but not allow it to penetrate your heart in a way that causes you to apply it to your life. I know a lot of people who know a lot about the Bible who are a long way from God. And you probably do too. I guess one more thought before we move on, just related to this whole debacle of this Q&A time with Jesus trying to trap him that led to this great moment when this genuine, sincere question was asked and Jesus gave the perfect answer. Uh, Have you ever noticed that sometimes... You know, in our lives of faith, in our pursuit of trying to follow God, we, we are always so, so desperate to look for something new and different and something to uh, improve on what we already know when all we really need to live the deeper life that God has called us to live is just to, just to believe and trust and obey in what he's commanded us to do, the life he's called us to live. But there's always... It seems this quest for something new or something different when what we need to do is embrace the most fundamental things. And so, having said that, as we look at the the overall uh, passage here, there are three things that I want to share with you, and I'll try to do this quickly. If you're someone who likes to take notes as we try to understand this a little bit more, having said all that as by way of introduction, then here's the first thing. If you're someone who likes to take notes, write this down. The first thing I've got here is what I'm just going to call a first things first commandment. 
a first things first commandment. That's what we have here in our text. This teacher of the law asked of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus quoted the familiar words of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And at the heart of those words is this commandment, this first things first commandment to love God. So that's where it all starts, to love God. Now, why does the most important commandment start with and, 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 and center on loving God? Well, there are a lot of different reasons. Let me just give you three real quick. Because, first of all, because there's nothing more worthy of our love than God. There's nothing, there's no one in this universe that God created that is more worthy of our love than God. And I heard a preacher talk about this one time just to say that this is not original with me. But he said that God created all of us with this capacity for love, a capacity to give love and a capacity to receive love. But the question we all have to ask ourselves every day is, am I using that capacity for love in the right way? We can say, I love my spouse, and that's great. We can say, I love my children, and that's great. We can say, I love my job. I love certain hobbies. I love certain activities. We can say, I love the cults. We can say, I love to travel. We can even say, I love bluebell ice cream. And none of those things are wrong. But here's the deal that we have to understand about our love and the capacity we have for love. We give our love to a variety of different things. But if you get to the end of your capacity for love without loving God first and foremost with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, then you've made a mistake. And so the question we ask ourselves is, where does God fit in my capacity for love? Now, you might say, well, pastor, can't you love God in other things? And I would say, first of all, yes. But I would also say, you're asking the wrong question. The question for all of us is not, can't I love God in other things? The question has always got to be, does my love for God take first place over other things? And you know, an easy way to find out, and I've told you this for years. I'm not going to say anything new that you haven't heard before. There's an easy way for all of us to find out where our love for God fits in our love for things. All you got to do is look at your calendar and look at whatever it is you use today to monitor your spending. Now, if this was 20 years ago, I'd say your checkbook. But we all have debit cards, and who carries a checkbook anymore? So whatever it is that you look at, to monitor the way you spend money. You look at your calendar and you look at the way you spend money and you're going to learn a lot. Those are going to reveal a lot about who and what you love most in this world. No one is more worthy of our love than God. Look at these words on the screen from Psalm 89 verse 8. In fact, read these words with me. Let me hear your voices. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. God, there's no one like God. No one at all. And so we, and I'm going to put myself at the top of the list, we have to understand that we spend a lot of time, all of us, pursuing a love of things that in the scope of eternity provide no real benefit for our lives. And I'm not saying there's not a place for those pursuits, because there is. But I'm saying when they take the place of God in terms of our first love and our first priority, then our love lives are out of balance. And this is a problem. 
in the American culture that we're all a part of. Second thing is this. We love God because he loved us first. And that is one of the most fundamental and powerful truths of the Bible. In fact, look at these words on the screen. From 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, literally, this is what John says. He, loves, he says, we love because he first loved us. The God of the universe loves every single person in this, in this room. Now, you might say, wait a minute, Pastor, I'm not sure I can agree with that because you don't know who I am, you don't know where I've been, you don't know the things I've done, but it doesn't matter when it comes to God. Somebody say amen to that. It doesn't matter when it comes to God. And the significance of the truth that God loved us first is found in what God's love offers us. Salvation, the forgiveness of our sin, the opportunity to live a life that is more complete and more abundant than any life we could ever discover on our own through our own pursuits. That's what God offers. Every one of us has the opportunity to have this personal relationship with God because that's what every one of us needs, every one of us has what the philosopher says, this God-shaped void inside of us that can only be filled by God. And we try to fill it up with all these other things, but nothing satisfies like God. We love him because he first loved us. I remember when I was just a, a, a boy growing up in church, my mother, she had a really pretty singing voice, and she used to sing in church a lot. She sang in the choir, but she used to sing specials in church a lot, and I remember this one song she sang. She probably sang it multiple times over the years. And I always remember the words of the chorus that went like this. I love him because he first loved me. I love him because of Calvary. I will live for him forever and never. Never sorry be, for I love him because he first loved me. The third reason why we love him that I have in my notes here is because we love God first above everything else because, and this is going to sound odd, but bear with me, because it's, it's the most difficult. And the reason why I say that is because we love God by faith. It's one thing to love what we can see. It's one thing to love what we can touch. It's one thing to love someone or something that we can measure with our empirical senses. But it's another thing altogether to love a God who is unseen, listen to me close, and a God who we sometimes can't understand because he's infinite and we're finite, because he's limitless and we're limited, because he's the creator and we're the creation, and we don't always know how he chooses to exercise his sovereignty in this world. And so we love him by faith, and sometimes that can be difficult. Here's the second thing I would share to try to explain this passage of Scripture a little bit more clearly. Write this down next to number two. What we see in this passage is an all-consuming love. We see this first thing's first command that we love God. And then the second thing we see is that it is an all-consuming love. Look back at Mark chapter 12, verse 30. This is how Jesus in answering the question, describes the way we love God. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. What does that look like if we just take a little, a little bit of time to look at each one of those words? The word for heart here is the Greek word cardia. 
It's not a, it's not a word that refers to the literal, literal organ, the, the literal heart that's beating in your chest. It's a word that refers to the center of our lives or the core of our being. That's why it's often said that when you read the word heart in the Bible, it refers to the mind because we think of we, the mind is where everything begins in our lives. It seems to be the center for everything that directs our lives. Proverbs 4.23 is a great verse that many of you probably know, even though you might not recognize the reference. The, the proverb writer says, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And that word wellspring in the Hebrew language has the root basic meaning of source or beginning point. That's the reality of the heart in our lives. And so the idea here is really simple. We are to love God from the very core of who we are, the very core of our being, the very center of our lives. That's how we are to love God. It's an all-consuming love. The word soul is the Greek word suke. And when you read it in the New Testament, it's often used as a reference to our emotions. One example would be, since this is the last week of Jesus' life, he's just days away from the cross. One example would be in Matthew 26 and verse 38, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, my soul is overwhelmed, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He, he felt in his soul, what he identified as his soul, this deep level of sorrow, knowing that he was about to be beaten, brutalized, and murdered on a cross. You see the same kind of reference in the Old Testament for the word soul, although in the Old Testament, since it was written in the Hebrew language, it would be a different word. And so we love God. Here's what this means. We love God with all of our soul when we have deep feelings about God in our lives. And those feelings can come in a variety of different ways. Sometimes they can come as tears of joy or tears of sorrow. Sometimes they can come as a passion for following God, a passion for serving God, a passion for the will of God. Sometimes they can come in feelings of sorrow when we're convicted of our sin and we know we're falling short. Sometimes they can come in absolute feelings of delight when we study his word. But the bottom line is if you never have any feelings for God, and I know we're all different, and some people are more emotional than others, so I understand that. But if you never have any feelings, any deep feelings about God, then you're not loving him with all your soul. You're probably not loving him with all your soul. The word for mind is the Greek word dianoie. It has the basic meaning of understanding, and this is really important. I want us to talk about this for a minute. So when we love God with all of our mind, then it means we love God with an understanding. And the idea behind that is that we love God with a knowledge of who he is, and we love God with an understanding of who he is. And that makes sense because the more knowledge you have about God, the more you understand about God, the more you understand about God, the more you love God. That's how that works. And I'm going to pause for just a moment and say that I think this is where a lot of churches really are making a big mistake today by not giving people a genuine knowledge of God. That's what happens when we program, for lack of a better word, our services with an emphasis more on feelings and experiences than teaching and truth and knowledge and understanding. And the reason why that happens is so many churches, churches today are desperate for growth. With the rise of the megachurch, 
and, and this, this rapid decline of smaller churches that's happening in our culture has only been sped up by COVID. Um, there's this desperation in a lot of churches for, for size and numbers and things like that. And so a lot of people have bought into this idea that you have to entertain people in order to get them to church or in order to keep them from church. But here's the big problem with programming your church, church service uh, with, a, with the purpose of entertaining people. If we program our church service with the, with a, with a, the uh, uh, intent of entertaining people, who is... Who is the audience in that service? Who is the most important part of that service? It's the people that are there. Well, I've always lived under the understanding that it was God who was the audience when we come together to worship. And so why would we ever program a church service that could leave God on the outside looking in, wonder what's, wondering what's going on? Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 and verse 24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. You can do both. You can worship God with feelings, but you can also, also worship God with fact, with truth, with knowledge. I like to be entertained as much as the next guy. I love to go to movies. When Sandy and I were on vacation in July, we went to see three different movies. I liked two of them. I thought one of them was awful. But I'm not, I, here's the thing. I'm not a big, huge movie snob or movie critic. I'm not. You know why? Because I don't go to movies to try to find out the meaning of life. I go to movies to be entertained and be distracted for a couple of hours, but I don't go to try to find out the meaning of life. And I don't go to church to be entertained or distracted. I stand up here right now and I look at some of your faces and I know some of the things that you're going through. I know the darkness that you're walking through in your life or that you've walked through in your life and other seasons of life, I, I can only imagine what some of the rest of you are going through. And I have to believe that you didn't come here today to be entertained. You tried, you came here today to try to meet God in a meaningful way that speaks to the reality of your life, where you are right now in your life. We can't love God with all of our mind until we embrace the greatness of God with our minds and that only happens when we learn more about God. Finally, the word strength here is the Greek word iskus, and it's a simple description of physical strength and capacity. And because I'm running out of time, I'm really all out of time already and have another point. Let me just say this. The idea is that we begin each and every day with a, with a certain capacity of strength, and we need to use that strength in some way to honor and serve God. And so we need to love God exactly the way Jesus describes in the text. We need to love him with with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And that is an all-consuming love. Somebody say amen to that. Here's the third thing, a practical application. Because you're, about this time, you're probably wondering, why are we calling this series Next Door, The Art of Neighboring? Because you haven't said anything about that. Well, I'm going to close by saying this. And I'm not going to talk about it for a long time. I've got a, just a brief thing here. Because we're going we're gonna to unpack this more in the next three weeks. But if we go back to our text one more time and we read verses 28 through 31, let's remind ourselves of what was happening here. The second, after identifying uh, the greatest commandment, uh, Jesus says, the greatest commandment being to love God, Jesus says in verse 31, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. 
So he says, the greatest commandment is to love God with all, your, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he said, second, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And here's, here's, the, here's my main point for this series, this introductory, introductory message to this series. Here's the main point, and it's critical to all of our lives of faith. Jesus is not saying that loving your neighbor as yourself is second in importance He's saying that loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself as a part of the greatest or the most important commandment is there because it's a practical illustration of the first. You say you love God. You say you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Then here's one of the first things you need to do. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's telling us. If you truly, honestly, genuinely, sincerely love God, then you're going to love your neighbor. And I don't know of anything more significant that I can say when it comes to this whole idea of the art of neighboring, of understanding how we're supposed to view the people around us in our lives. And I'm going to be honest and tell you that when I typed those words into my manuscript, they did not challenge me. And they did not convict me. They exposed me. And I wonder if it's doing the same thing to anyone else here today. This idea that if you really, truly, and genuinely love God, you're going to love your neighbor, you're going to love the people around me, around you, that exposes me. Because I can stand up here today and say, and I can say this with integrity, I love people because I do. That's in my heart. I love all of you. I love all of you as a group together on that side of the pulpit. I love you. But it's the one-on-one encounters that I'm struggling with. How about you? And they're getting more difficult the older I get because my patience has gotten pretty short, and my ability to be annoyed and irritated and disappointed has gotten pretty great. So I'm not just not a good neighbor. I am probably the wrong person to be up here talking to you about this issue. All right, the majority of my weekend messages on Tuesday, <clears throat> so I almost always uh, eat lunch at my desk. I spend my entire day in my office on Tuesday kind of sequestered from everything else that's going on. That was the case this past Tuesday. And so I got up for just a brief time. I went <clears throat> just around the corner to Subway to get a sandwich for lunch. And after spending the entire morning in this text thinking about this idea of loving God and loving your neighbors yourself, thinking about this idea of the art of neighboring, it took me all of about 30 seconds as I stood in line at Subway to start thinking in my mind, the man in front of me is a moron. And I thought to myself, this is Subway. It's not a five-star restaurant. It's not even a gourmet sandwich shop. Just place your order, let him make your sandwich, 
pay your money and get out of my way because I've got more important things to do like writing a sermon about loving your neighbor. And here's the deal, and I want you to hear me really close. I'm glad that you laughed at that. That is okay with me. But I'm not trying to be funny. Because this doesn't challenge me, and it doesn't convict me. It exposes me. And how can you do that? How can you spend that time studying the Scriptures with the intent of teaching these truths to someone else. And so quickly, so quickly, let them go like they never even penetrated your mind. The world we live in today desperately needs people who will love their neighbor as a tangible, physical, genuine illustration of the truth that they love God with an all-consuming love and they understand the importance of this command. I want you to pray with me. Lord, thank you for our time together and thank you for your word And thank you for how your word can convict our hearts because your word can expose our hearts and help us in moments like this to not think that just making a confession of the struggle is all that needs to be done. But help us to recognize moments when genuine repentance which is the turning away from sin and the turning to God, needs to take place in our lives so that we can please you, honor you, and love you, first and foremost over all things. Thank you for my church family here today, everyone who's present, everyone listening online. Speak to our hearts about the importance of loving our neighbors. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, let's stand together and let's sing a song before we close. And then after the service is over, if you're a prayer counselor, come on down. And if you need somebody to pray with you or pray for you about something in particular, when the service is over, before you leave, come on down and let somebody just minister to you for a moment. Don't let the moment pass. You got a burden on your heart today. Let somebody minister to you today.